Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought with me, Becky Lee. I'm super glad that you're here joining me again because today I have on the amazing Lenaria Adermi, who is a poet and playwright committed to amplifying and archiving untold stories, which we go into in the episode. But Lenaria also holds a degree in sociology and a master's in creative writing from the University of Warwick. That's actually where we met. Um, yeah, and we also talk a bit about Warwick if you're interested in that at all. Uh, she's also the recipient of the 2019 Shoe Festival Artist Development Awards and the 2020 Peter, Peter Goodkind Prize from the University of Warwick. Lanary has written and directed films which have been screened at Change Your Style and Story Story Festival. We go into all things style actually um, and we talk about what it's like being a poet and a playwright and a performer. Uh, so I hope you really enjoy this episode and I also have a sponsor now guys. When the team at Twives reached out asking if I wanted to collaborate, well you know that I absolutely had to say yes because we're all about being sustainable, you know, doing our best to reduce our environmental impact and reduce our waste here on the pod. And Twipes helps us to do exactly that. They are truly biodegradable and flushable toilet wipes. Now I've used them for their intended purpose and I found them to be super. They're infused with aloe vera, so they're very fresh. And honestly, with it being around Easter time, anyone that knows me knows I eat like a five-year-old. So my hands are always covered in chocolate and I can just use them and not have to worry about my impact on the planet because I just clean them up and they work super effectively so yeah they're really great honestly they vanish within three hours i think which again is just amazing the science behind is phenomenal so if you're interested in learning a bit more about them or if you would like a sweet 33 percent off for the time being which again incredible discounts got your whole third off there all you need to do is head over to twipes.uk forward slash becky to claim the discount so that's t-w-i-p-e-s dot uk forward slash becky with two c's b-e-double-c-y to get a whole third off so thanks again for the team at twipes for doing the amazing work and thank you for supporting the pod all right now onto the episode i hope you enjoy and see you at the end bye Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought. This week I am joined by Lenari Adaremi. Hi Rebecca, thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Um, I've had a really busy day, but I feel really ex- excited because I love um, talking about um, you know everything that interests me. So yeah. 
That's good. So for those um, that are listening that don't know you or what you get up to, can you give maybe a brief introduction? Yeah, um, so my name is Lenore, as Rebecca said, and I'm a poet, playwright, and also PhD student at work. I, I really love visiting art galleries. I love tea. I love colorful eyeshadow. Um, I, I really like watching films, reading books. And I write a lot. And I love traveling and um, alongside all these hobbies, I have published um, short stories, poems, plays, um, and also been involved in, in film. Um, and all the work I do is really about amplifying and archiving untold stories, particularly stories about um, black women and, um, you know, stories of joy, stories of, of um, sadness, of, of history, um, of the future and you know doing that in very imaginative and innovative ways i have a very interdisciplinary practice and i believe that um to push the boundaries of storytelling one needs to combine as many forms of of arts or, or disciplines together that's amazing i can't wait to go into all of that um but the, as, as as everyone knows the first question i ask every guest on my podcast is who or what is one person idea or event that has changed the way that you see the world Mm, I think Solange. I love Solange. Really? <laughs> uh, she's changed the way I see the world. Um, just because I think she, first of all, really revolutionized. I know that's such a big word, but even music videos. As soon as she she has this like grainy sort of film like way of storytelling in terms of the texture, but then her style of editing, um, her attention to colors is remarkable. While splitting that with her narrative which again celebrates black women. And I think for me, listening to a seat at the table, as well as music videos that accompanied the songs really changed the way I, I guess it changed the way I saw, um, it, it reminded me of Toni Morrison's quotes about standing at the border and claiming the border central and letting people come to you. Um, essentially the idea that a lot of times in the world, you're told to essentially like follow everybody else and, um, follow the trends but I think artists that are able to just stick to their guts and do what makes them curious and makes them happy are people that really inspire me and Solange is one of them yeah so I'll say Solange That's, do you feel like you operate in the same way with your art yeah definitely I'm very when I like something I stick to it mm-hmm. uh, and even with with my play I remember early drafts of it um one one Thing that I would get as feedback is maybe I have too many characters or I I have a lot of audience interaction or I I do I'm very I guess my style is extremely um it's not traditional at all and I think a lot of times when you're working with theaters that might not necessarily like that um although I didn't actually personally experience that but I do know that and I'm grateful that I didn't experience that. I had a lot of freedom with working with theatres and a lot of our organisations. But I do know that it can be very difficult for an artist to be in a space that does not encourage them to push the boundaries of storytelling. And I think that for me, um, my work tries to do that in, in many ways. And seeing artists like Solange, um, writers like Toni Morrison, um, there's so many writers that whenever I get asked questions, I just, for some reason, my mind just goes blank. But yeah, there's so many, you know, amazing people that have inspired my work. And I think for me, I'm always interested in people that 
follow their curiosity. Mm, yeah, that's so important. Um, let's go into some of your work then. So obviously you have an upcoming uh, excerpt being performed at the Belgrade Theatre um, later this month, the 28th to 29th of April, if anyone wants to go see it. Um, yeah. But it's called Protest Hymns and Caskets. Uh, why don't you talk a bit about this if you can? Yeah, so thank you. Um, Protest Hymns and Caskets was a play I finished writing during my master's in 2021, which is last year. Mm-hmm. You <laughs> <laughs> Next updates. Um, and it was um, a journey because the journey kind of started way before then. It started in 2017 when, in fact, way before 2017, I'd say like 2014, when I was in secondary school and my teacher taught us about the Igbal Women's Revolt, which was an anti-colonial feminist movement where Nigerian women organized strikes and protests against British colonial taxation, and they won. And it was one of the first movements I had encountered where, first of all, it was women-led. Secondly, they actually won. And thirdly, was erased from our collective imagination. And I constantly interrogated that, like, why is it that the most successful women I know of, of all the movements in the world, were not being taught it in, in school? At least a lot of my friends didn't know about it. And so... Um, like I said earlier, when I like something, I like it a lot. And so I just did a lot of research. And then it turns out that my grandmother actually witnessed the revolt when she was very young. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she was like three or four. So I asked her, I was like, oh, my God, grandma, like, I didn't even know. I didn't know she was from that area. It's just, I just asked my mom. She was like, you know, your grandma's from that area. And I was like, oh, wow. That's so <laughs> like, And um, I asked her to give me some details about it. And she shared what she remembered. I mean, she was young, so a lot of it was just history that she inherited in a sense. Um, And then I used that information to create a play that was inspired by that event. And it was part of Fresh Blood Festival at Warwick, which is a university drama society. And um, 300 people attended the play. It was my first year, so I was very shook because I don't even think I knew 300 people at uni. Um, and in that moment when, you know, one one claps or you receive an applause, like I wasn't hearing the applause. I was just hearing like kind of like words from God. I was just like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like this is your calling. And I don't actually believe it one, everybody has one calling. I think you can do many things with your life. And I think for me, because I had never written a play before and I, I didn't study drama, I did literature in A-level, but that was really it. And I acted when I was in primary school and secondary school. But yeah, that experience really gave me confidence. And then in my second year of uni, I developed that play um, into a, a slightly longer piece, which was part of the Birmingham Rep Poetic Theatre Makers Programme, which was a programme developed by Alia Hasina. Um, and it's basically a programme that taught you, taught poets how to write for theatre. That was essentially its aim. And so I learned a lot about how to write for theatre and I had mentors um, from Chris Thorpe to Samaria Seaton to Daniel Bailey to Madeline. Um, and these were, you know, amazing, amazing playwrights, directors, theatre makers, etc. And then in 2021, um, during my master's, it, it had like, there were like three years of me just leaving that play. Like, it essentially was just on my laptop. I had a long project, which is basically a dissertation. It's a fancy way of saying dissertation, but it's for creative writing master's students. And it was a 20,000 word dissertation. And so I decided to choose to develop the, I guess, abandoned 
work, which was my play. And I just kept writing. I wrote from April to September. Just kept writing, kept editing it. And I was off social media for during that time. So it was like, I was so immersed in that world. Mm. And the play, thankfully, was shortlisted for the Mustafa Matura Award, which is the, one of the highest uh, national playwriting awards. So again, it just gave me so much hope. And then from there, I got commissioned by Shoot Festival, which is an organization that aims to develop homegrown talent in, in Coventry and Warwickshire. And that's basically how I'm able to show the play in three weeks, exactly, exactly three weeks from now. <laughs> that's so exciting. Oh my yeah, God. The long story. <laughs> Are you nervous? No, I'm actually, I'm very excited. Although I am nervous about the coming together of different elements because when when you're a student, you can afford to make mistakes. But then when you're an adult, like you have even just adult things like insurance, thing like taxes. I'm just like, oh my God. Ah!" Yeah, I know. That's the not (laughs) fun part. (laughs) All the admin. I think one of my friends were talking and I was telling her that like, Adulting is just admin when you think about it. It's literally just admin. Um, but yeah, but it's been fun. And I'm choosing to, I guess, really be be present. One thing I keep telling myself is, yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to the play, but the process of being at rehearsals, of casting the actors, speaking to people like you, you know, um, being present at set design meetings, those are all very very valuable in my own journey as an artist and I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to just create work that people can witness yeah that's so exciting so are you are you directing it or did you like hire a director yeah so I'm I'm not directing it um Jen Davis who is a creative collaborator is doing that and she's also the artistic co-artistic director of shoot festival with an amazing person called Paul O'Donnell yeah that's amazing. I You've convinced me to see it. You've 100% convinced me to see it. Thank you. Um, okay, just to pivot slightly. When I was doing my research on you, which always sounds like really creepy, but obviously I like to do it. You kind of spoke a lot online before about style, you know, about writing, fashion. But what do you think your style says about you? Yeah, it's so crazy that you asked that because I was I just finished, or a few months ago, I finished a book by Zadie Smith, which is one of my favorite books. It's a short book. I'd recommend anybody that has a short attention span. <laughs> um, it's called, and I always mix it up. I believe it's called Imitations. I always mix it up between Imitations, Intimations, and Imitations. <laughs> they sound so alike. <laughs> but if you Zadie Smith and the I word, you definitely find it. Mm-hmm. But um, she references a quote by Suzanne Sontag, which basically says, a style is a means of insisting something. Mm. And I think that's what style is for me. Like, it literally is what you insist. Um, and so I guess to answer your question, my I, think, I guess my style reflects who I am as a person, but also reflects my complexities, my multifacetedness, my um, unpredictability as well, and my humanness, because... I change my style a lot. I even have a film called Change Your Style. That's how much like I know that's <laughs> that's how much I like to change my style. And I was even reflecting on this with a friend about how and this is like really me digressing, but I'll just drop that thoughts. Basically about how um is our style our style or is it just the style that we consume? So we think it is. Mm. So like at the time when I went to Paris like a few weeks ago. 
and everyone was messaging me saying, oh my God, Lana, your style is so cool. Da, 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 da. And I was just like, I've been dressing the same. <laughs> what made it different? Then I realized that it was probably because the scenery had changed. And so the environment was insisting itself it, on me. Like there was suddenly this sort of like, super, I guess there was this thing that was insisting itself on me. And it's like being framed. It's like a photo being framed, you know? Um, and so, I mean, that is just one of many examples, but I do think that, yeah, like style is very fluid and I always try my best to just follow what comes instinctive to me and to have an abundant mindset towards ideas um, because I was talking to another friend and I was telling her about how sometimes I get scared that like, essentially, because I basically have this rule now where like, I don't shop for more clothes. I just have to like, stick to what I have. I don't want to buy things I don't need. Yeah. I've been doing this for like, at least since 2020. So I don't think I bought anything new except it was like a birthday outfit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, okay, maybe, yeah, and special occasions. So it's been going... That's allowed. <laughs> exactly. Um, but then I was telling my friend about how, and basically I was worried that, like, I would not be able to come up. I know it sounds so, <laughs> so shallow, but, like, I wouldn't be able to come up with, like, a combination of outfits that I liked and that I hadn't worn before. Because, mm-hmm. yes, I don't have a problem with repeating clothes, but for me, because I don't like to see myself in the same thing, not even because of, like, people's thoughts, just because I'm just trying my best to be more imaginative with my combination. It's more like, it's like an exercise in my head. Yeah. Um, and I was telling her about, like, my struggle, and she was just like, Lenore, like, trust yourself that you'll be able to create, like, a different style. And, like, I literally did that, and I don't know if it was just my mind playing tricks on me, but suddenly I was just remembering things I had in my wardrobe, and I was like, oh, my God, I can mix this with this. And I think that, again, goes to show that, you know, style is not just instinctive, but also requires trust in in, in oneself or in, in one's God or, or in, like, in, or in friendship. Like, just being able to really believe that what is in you can be recovered and expressed in a myriad of forms whether it's fashion or music or writing as long as you stay true to to yourself and and to what makes you curious and what mm. makes you if, if it's not curiosity maybe what makes you angry as long as there's an emotional connection i think i think style can insist itself in some way yeah do you think anyone can ever be unstylish i think even being unstylish is style in itself yeah i get you esteem that you want to be unstylish because I was just, even just, even that word, like, oh, hmm, I think people can have, some people can have bad style. <laughs> but I think that's because I have a taste. It's like yeah. food. Like, like, I don't like a lot of, I don't drink a lot of things that have milk or take a lot of things that have milk. Um, and, like, if someone gave me, like, maybe, I don't know, like, tea with milk, like, I would be like, ew, that's horrible because I don't drink milk. But then, yeah, so I, I feel like, essentially, as long as... um like as long as like you have everyone has their own their palate their palate their taste things that make them like feel content so if something goes outside of it, then I think that is for me bad style and that's why I can look at someone's outfit and be like oh I can never wear that but like it might for them that might be like their sense of style and no shade that's their style yeah I get you I'm just thinking about what like what I genuinely want to insist upon as you said or like the this feeling that there's something I ought to insist upon you know what I mean and I'm like how do I know what I truly want to say about myself rather than what I think I should be trying to say about myself okay it's a very weird and I because I feel like because of how I guess social media's entanglements and like family friends I always say like sometimes I think I wake up and I'm like 
is this really me? Like, I just, <laughs> like, who would I be if, like, if not for people's thoughts, ideas? And that's something that I always try to, like, really sit down and think about, like, okay, Lanary, like, who are you today? Who do you want to be today? And then, I don't know, I think last year when I went on social media, I always talk about it and people always make it sound like, sorry, no, it's not even people, it's me. I, I sometimes make it sound like I went on, like, a retreat in, like, some mountain and I came back. But honestly, it felt like that because I was off grid and it was such a beautiful thing to feel that way because mm-hmm. I saw the world through different eyes. But at the same time, I feel like it made me learn about what I actually really, really like because suddenly I wasn't trying to, like, I don't think I tried to please people, but I think even subconsciously, we are pleasing people in a sense. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Do you recommend a social media hiatus to people? Definitely. At minimum, one month. Like, I think everybody should take one. Um, It just brings so much clarity. There's so much noise as well. Mm, So true. I have a poem that actually, um, one of my... Uh, poetry collections which should be out hopefully this year or early next year a few of the poems are actually about like my experiences going offline and the joy I felt because it just makes you more present you know like suddenly you're talking to strangers suddenly when you're on the train if you live in London for instance like you're actually looking at people instead of like getting chronic back pain you know, like just there's some beautiful moments that I think we miss out on just because we're always on our phones. Um, there's a song by Childish Gambino, which I always think about. I don't know if the song is called Outside, but it has the lyrics outside. And the lyrics are, there's a world we can visit if we go outside. And I always think about that, like there's so much we can visit if we go outside. Like there's so much more of the world, even outside our phones outside our own imaginations, which we can encounter when we speak to other people, to strangers, to friends. Um, So I hope that if people decide to do the break, that they truly go outside themselves. Yeah, definitely. Now I feel like I need to go on this retreat and figure all these things (laughs) out. Um, Have you ever gone off social media before? Um... I mean, I have, but, like, never across the board. Like, I've deleted Instagram for, like, you know... A month at a time and then yeah. something's come up that I've needed to go back on it for or like yeah. I don't really have the Facebook app on my phone but now like TikTok is the worst for me like I need to get rid of it <laughs> ASAP genuinely well, nah I, I look I think the only reason why I haven't done it TikTok is because I see them posted on like Instagram and Twitter <laughs> you're so well, consuming feel, them it is I feel like if I downloaded it I would be so addicted to it because yeah yeah I can't imagine yeah, don't don't do it to yourself, honestly. I tell everyone, I'm like, if you don't have TikTok, like keep it that way. Yeah, and I feel like it genuinely has shortened my attention span, which is dangerous. I need yeah. to get it back. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh moving slightly on. So obviously we all exist in our individual bodies. They're like vehicles that we you know navigate the world in. And you know, the various intersections that you exist in, so being black, being a woman, they all inform and impact your work. Do you want to talk a bit about how that happens Mm. I think I think it just gives you you're just I guess you have new eyes new ways of seeing the world I think that's the beauty of it um I feel like obviously there's there's the negatives which is misogynoir that black women face and the erasure that you have to contest with even in your work and I think a lot of the themes of my of my work have addressed that so change your style for instance talks about the beauty of black women's hair 
um, while simultaneously addressing the racism in, in, in the you know, hair industry in schools where black people are penalized for expressing their hair and, you know, in the ways they want to express it. So I guess there's, there's multiplicities to it. And then I guess from culturally, there, there's a lineage of black women that have definitely inspired my work. Like I have a mentor who calls it like your literary family tree. Mm-hmm. What has inspired you? Like your lineage, your, yeah. And I have a lot of that. So like writers like Octavia Butler, Toni Morrison, Sadie Smith. Again, I always go blank when I'm trying to remember people, but there's so many writers. Oh, Shange, um, she's a, a playwright and poet who wrote for Colored Girls. So yeah, there, I think there's just so much richness to to blackness and and also to, uh, yeah, so yeah, there's so much richness. And I, I think for me, I'm also interested in the sort of like the transnational-ness of it. So um, I lived in Nigeria for a long time, but I'm in London at the moment. Um, I had friends who are in Canada and the U.S., and we all, even in France, so we and we all articulate blackness in such different ways. And I think I'm always interested in like seeing those unique differences, so that blackness doesn't become this monolith thing. And yeah, it's very interesting when you when you see how different people articulate their identity. Yeah, definitely. And I think you can like obviously sometimes it's like a homogenization of like being a woman or like being black yeah. or being a black woman as well. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's incredibly interesting and. Obviously, the whole podcast is called I've Never Had an Original Thought, so all of these things naturally will inform your work. Mm, for sure. Um, so how do you, how did you get into the performance of, you know, some of your plays and your poetry? Is that an aspect that you enjoy or are you happy now that you have actors? That's a good question. I think naturally, as a writer, you are called, not no, you're called, you're asked to read your work. Even if you don't end up becoming like this sort of award-winning writer, at some point you have to read your work to somebody, even if it's to get feedback. I, when I was in secondary school, sorry, not secondary school, primary school, and I'm sure lots of school students did that. We had to, I, I don't know if you did this, but we like had like time for like reading. It was a whole reading time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And then sometimes like, I think you had to read aloud. So like I've had to read so much aloud like even Sunday school in church like you read aloud in school you'd have to read aloud you know there's so much of reading aloud and so I guess naturally I became this sort of like oral historian or yeah the oral form has always been so attached to my writing practice it's inseparable and so yeah I think that's just how but then in terms of the performative elements of it I always, it's always interesting because a lot of people call, people say that even my one woman show, they call it a performance. Although like I was just being myself. I don't think I was really performing. But then when I watch some of my videos, I'm like, oh my God, ew, like that would not, is that me? Like I, I look back and I'm like, wow. But I think it's just, it's just in me that has more audacity because there's something about performances that I was even just in a, in a um, Zoom call just a few, a few hours ago. And my friend Erica was talking about our inner child. And a lot of people in the Zoom call were talking about how the question was if you could, what, what would you want to do that is stopping, that you did want as a child and what is stopping you? And people were talking about like writing and like playing the instrument. Everybody talked about creative things. Nobody, not one person talked about anything that was non, not creative. 
And so I think there's just something about creativity that just heals our inner child and like allows us to tap into that playfulness. And I think for me, the stage is my playground. I literally feel like I am like in a playground with like swings and slides and the audience members, I use them a lot in my, I guess that's where style comes in. So I use them as my, as my equipment or as my uh, sand or, you know, if I could extend that metaphor of playgrounds. Yeah. And so I think for me, like just being on the stage is fun. Like I literally feel so happy. But then when I get off stage and people come up to me like, oh my God, you're so confident. And I'm just like, mm, that was me, but that wasn't me. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy because the audacity I have when I'm on stage, I'm not, I'm not actually the most, I wouldn't say I'm not extroverted, but I'm not, I'm like in the middle. Um, and so like being on stage requires, I always say like it requires, it's very, I feel like now I understand why they say like a lot of these like, a-list performers like experience like sadness and like you know they just have some things that they're going through after performance because there's a high it actually gives you and if you're not careful if you don't protect your, your space and your peace like you'd constantly become addicted to that high and so I think for me I just always try to stay grounded I'm not like any celebrity and I don't I don't even want to be celebrity but I just think that yeah performances allow me to be myself and to be myself without fear. And I think that's because I get to be a child again. I love that. I love that. I'm curious about the audience participation part of your work. Do you ever have any like trepidation nerves around it? Because I guess sometimes there's this expectation as an audience member that you're there to simply view and not participate. So mm. you ever just like when, when, when the audience is called upon to, you know, engage in a different way, are you ever like, this could go tits up they could just not be into it yeah I feel like it's been practiced because I definitely have had moments of like awkward silences but I think again like I remember you know I said earlier about being a performer for me is like being a child mm. if a child, child children don't know what awkward silences are they'll just laugh <laughs> or they feel the silence and I think for me I just feel the silence and I'd even make a joke. I'd be like, "You guys don't want to come up here because you're feeling awkward." Like jokes on you. I think that's kind of where my comedy slash dark humor comes in. But <laughs> but yeah, I've had those moments where people are like, mm, "I don't want to come in," and I and I try to kind of get them to question that. And it it doesn't mean that I actually ask them well, why do you not want to come in, but I just I, I sit in the silence. And eventually, somebody's always breaking up because the thing about audience members is as much as the performer might feel awkward because of a silence, for instance, they will also be implicated in the awkwardness if there is too much of a silence. So it's like we're both connected <laughs> and people don't like awkwardness. And so eventually somebody will be like, oh man, let me just take one for the team and then do it. I don't really read the room. I just do what comes natural to me. I remember there's a performance I had in February, no, March. And I there's a poem called Tinkle Tinkle, which is me recreating like a childhood game. I asked two performers to come up on the stage and it was it wasn't even planned because I don't plan a lot of my a lot of my audience participation activities. Some of them I do, but some of them I don't. They didn't actually know how to play the game. And it was like, oh God, like what do I do? And you have to just learn to think on the spot. And so I was like, okay, okay, what do I do? What do I do? And I was like, you know what, it's okay. I'll teach one of you how to play it and then you guys can then teach the other. When they were teaching each other, sorry, when I was teaching them and then they eventually played the game together. I was like, this is exactly what happens in a playground. So in some sense, the the stage has become, well, 
the playground has become a stage and the stage becomes the playground because then it's just interesting for me that I was able to bring a childhood game onto the stage but then I was also able to to show the audience that this is a performance itself they're literally taking up roles as children adults are acting you know and I think that's another like metaphysical physical sort of philosophical debate like adults acting as children and like the implications of that because we're stripped of our innocence that we crave anyways <laughs> that is a another talk for another day but yeah I just I just think performing just makes me feel like a child like I don't have any I don't feel scared like I'm just like myself like I feel like I'm because the, the place in if I could think of a place that makes me feel the most myself it would be the bathroom Okay. I feel so myself. Like I talk to myself. I'm honest. I'll cry because you know when like you're crying, there's water. <laughs> yeah, so it's dramatic. a whole moment. Honestly, it feels like you're in like some like dramatic film. Um, yeah. So yeah, that would be it. Was there any sort of unlearning you had to go through to like honor your inner child? Because every time I've kind of like try to do that I feel like embarrassed almost you know what I mean like when I'm when I want to be playful I'm thinking I'm too old for that you know I mean that's a good question I think journaling has helped me like trying to figure out the roots of it so I realized for me the root a lot of the root was people pleasing like I was like oh what they think about me and then someone explained to me that like it's so crazy that you're thinking that you want to please somebody else because they too have those thoughts so if everybody's trying to please each other then nobody's really pleasing anybody think about it that way and so i think one thing i always try to do is like challenge the thoughts and i'm like i write the thoughts down so i can see on paper and be like nah this is even real like these guys are not even for instance like people sometimes i think people are looking at me but they're not looking at me they're just looking at something else so i kind of use that template another thing i do is like baby steps so with the performing side for instance i didn't i wasn't always unafraid when I was engaging with the audience but I would start off maybe by um for instance getting people to raise their hand oh do you agree with this and then from there asking someone in the audience why don't you agree with this and then from there I was able to be like okay you don't agree with this come on the stage and join me and tell us why you don't agree with this so I think it's baby steps um and I think it's also maybe talking to friends about it so you all do it together because I mean I'm trying to think of something that I do now that I didn't do before that is so childlike. I think dancing, oh my gosh, yes. I used to be so scared of dancing in public because I can't dance. But now I'm like, yes, I can't dance. I, I own it. I really don't care. I'm going to dance. And yeah, children can't even dance that well. So I'm like, yeah, exactly. And I think having friends that also couldn't dance or at least friends that would cheer me even though I couldn't dance was really comforting. So yeah, I would say like having, doing it with your friends could also help. Yeah, I love that. And the security of like being in a collective as well. Mm. Like as you said, with your audiences as well, I'm sure it only takes that one person to break the mold and then everyone's putting their hands up and they're like, I wanna do it. Like that conformity test in psychology level, I think it's Ash, like when one person does it, everyone is like, Yeah, that's the right answer. Like, no, you guys weren't thinking you were thinking that deep down, but you were too scared. So yeah, I think I think that's that's the, the great thing about the collective, as you said. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, to pivot a little bit again, because there's just so much I want to cover. Obviously, you wrote an incredible dissertation for your undergraduate thesis. It was called Daughters of Disobedience, How Nigerian Feminists Are Using Twitter as a Tool for Storytelling, Resistance and Solidarity. 
what inspired you to like undertake that body of work and yeah how how was it mm. I guess what inspired me was I love Twitter <laughs> I actually really like Twitter I think it's such a cool app and um I've I have been on Twitter for about 10 years and I have made friends like lifelong friends on Twitter oh my god I sound like <laughs> I sound like when I'm going an ad <laughs> um but Twitter has been a space for community for me and discovering myself and as a teenager there's so many Odilo talks about it there's a lot of times you don't have the language for what you're feeling and then you find language and it's the most comforting thing. And then you find theory as Bill Hooks says, and it becomes a location of healing. And I think black feminist theory was that for me when I was on Twitter, like just seeing how black women articulated their own um, their struggles, their um, the ways they negotiate patriarchal um, spaces, what this researcher Obiama calls like patriarchal like landmines like you're constantly negotiating and re- renegotiating and while I was on Twitter I and this is like trigger warning for sexual violence there were Nigerian women who basically well there were two movements the first movement was called Church Church 2 which was a movement in response to Busola Dakolo who was this Nigerian woman who Um, She had a testimony of being raped by a pastor. And that testimony, like, it sparked, obviously, like, so much outrage on Twitter. And a lot of Nigerian women basically galvanized and they protested in front of the church. And for me, like, I was, I, I hate injustice so much. And I was not even in Nigeria when it happened, but I had friends who took part in the protest and I was just on Twitter and I just did the best I could, which was retweet, you know, share, support, all of those things. Um, but I was just so interested in kind of figuring out why Twitter was this conduit for for sisterhood and solidarity and resistance. Like, what was it about the app that was so effective in mobilizing and organizing? And then alongside that, in northern Nigeria, something similar happened where this woman who was also... Um, raped by her boyfriend tweeted about it and then she also received this very similar support and so those two things happened between two years and I just wanted to write about why certain tools on Twitter allowed for that I guess it's not I won't say it's a safe space but allowed um, women to express themselves boldly and also what tools on Twitter, like hashtags, and I guess what you'd call in sociology, they call it affected publics, which is basically, it's, it's a fancy way of saying having mutuals that are emotionally connected to you. Yeah, basically like that. So I was just looking at the tools that women were using to share their stories of sexual violence, but also on how Twitter, on why Twitter rather was unique in its, as unique as a medium and as a media form to engender that bravery and so yeah it went really really well um I interviewed a lot of Nigerian women and I learned so much it was written during the pandemic and so like I was literally the only person in my flat for like three weeks and it was very emotional experience because I was hearing so much about women's experiences navigating sexual violence and um I remember there was a talk I was at and I was just feeling so helpless and so overwhelmed by all the information and my friend said to me Lanaria like think of yourself as an archivist and 
it literally just I don't know like I just felt like in that moment similar to how I felt when I said playwriting was my calling I felt like this was something I was supposed to do like documents and you know be a sort of scribe for for this very important story which I felt like mainstream media hadn't really covered um so yeah that was basically the dissertation it's a long story again but I guess the short story would be that it's about how Nigerian feminists use Twitter and why it's cool for movements. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Um, I feel like there's definitely a thread of like oral history, storytelling in almost everything you do. So it does really feel like it is your calling. I love that you said thread because... <laughs> it does, but it does like it's kind of being pulled through the whole conversation yeah. that we've had, you know? And I like that you said thread because I usually, I have a few performances where I actually use threads. And then also I have, like always on Twitter, when you reply it, see, they call it a thread. Oh my God. Yeah, of course. (laughs) That that is such a cool thread that you just done. I need to write about that thread. That is a cool concept. But yeah. Yeah. um, I wanted to ask as well how the space has changed, like post pandemic, if at all. Mm, I think... Oh my goodness, that's a good question. Weirdly enough, though, I feel like I'm not as... Again, because I went on social media, I think that made me reduce my engagement. So I lost a lot of... I won't say I lost contact, but I, my proximity decreased. And so maybe... I don't know if, if it's that... Okay, to be fair, NSARS happened. So NSARS was a movement against police brutality. And I think that kind of became the next movement. I Yeah, I, I would say that that's what it is. So in terms of how it's changed, I think like maybe because there's been not, I wouldn't say there's been no outburst. Sorry, I don't want to call it an outburst. There, there's been no, with sexual violence movements, I haven't seen any recent ones, but I have seen a, there was a, a movement recently against like, like a, a bill that was passed in Nigeria or a bill that was about to be passed, but I, I haven't even been like engaging with that that much. But I do know that there have been things happening I think the main thing, though, I know of is NSARS, which was against police brutality, and Nigerian feminists were also part of that in their own way. So, yeah. Mm, I know little about this, but I think I remember reading something about, like, the the strange experience of, like, the online and in-person. Like, it's a lot more hazy than it used... The, the separation mm. is a lot more grey, because, as yeah, you said, yeah, these yeah. movements carry themselves online, but then you can yeah. actually see them in person. Yeah, the spaces are, it's very porous. Like, the online and the offline, they mix. And it's why someone can, like, meet you and they'd be shocked because they're like, oh, my God, you're not your online self. I think the online and the offline is such a, again, that's a, another crazy concept, like, how we represent ourselves in the digital space. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Mm, definitely. Um, so what what are you getting up to now apart from the playwriting? You said you are a PhD researcher. What are you spending your time doing your PhD on? So yeah, my, my PhD is on the Egba Women's Revolt, which is actually what my play is also on. Um, and the, the PhD is, is essentially a multimodal project that explores the strategies, the stories and the songs that Egba women used in the 1940s to resist British colonial taxation. And I chose to, sorry, no, not I chose, I, well, yeah, I guess I chose to do this PhD because I just wanted to document this important movement. I felt like I needed to continue the great work that had already been done because there are researchers, like one of my favorite researchers is Judith Byfield, who has written extensively on the Igbo women's revolts. But 
I just wanted to continue the work she'd done and and I guess do that through the arts as well. So not just within the academy. Um, hence why I use, you know, public engagement activities like plays and, and poetry. And outside that, I I go to watch plays. I visit art galleries. I really like going to art galleries. That's like one of my favorite spaces. I see my friends. I go to birthday parties. I love birthday parties. Like, I think birthday parties are the best creations that happen on earth like not for the celebrant though but for everyone that's attending um yeah and then i just write go to church hang i'll sit hang out with friends yeah i teach as well so um i teach a module at at work um which was really fun i teach in the iato department which is an interdisciplinary department and that was really fun so i, I guess i teach part-time i'd say but yeah but most of my time is just spent, I just write, like, that's all I'm doing, just writing. Sounds fun. Well, it sounds like you're doing something that you love, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, that's going to feel fulfilling. Exactly, you know, I think, I, I'm really, really happy that I have a job that just requires one instrument, which is either my pen or my voice. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And your mind. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's true. I actually took some IATL modules in my final year and they were my favourite mod well, one of them was my favourite module. Well, which module was that? I took Reinventing Education. Oh no. Nice. Um and I tell everyone about that. I'm like, that module changed my life. Genuinely. Wow. That's uh, I was the the teacher. Is it it's um Naomi Naomi? Yes, yes, yes. I, I love her. Naomi, if you're listening, I love you. Oh, <laughs> she's amazing. Oh, an amazing I know. woman. I mean, I never, like, I'm, I'm going to do an episode on critical pedagogy and, like, all the things that go into that because I could talk about it for years and years. <laughs> yeah, and then I did the feminist descent and practice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard of that. Yeah. I was gonna... It was good, but both of them were so good because they required, like, non-traditional forms of assessment. Uh, I love that. I feel like IATO as well changed my life just because of how, um, like the SDA, that was how I was able to create, I wrote a, created a hair festival. And that was like, just because based off like IATO's, you know, they're just more modules, like people would enjoy uni more if they had IATO. Literally. Is it uni to work? Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, I mean, well, everyone, I mean... We've had the amazing show experience of going there, but if anyone's thinking of a uni to go to, I tell them work all the time. Yeah, no, work is, I love that uni. And I have so many friends, like, till now, so I'm so happy I went to work. Like, the best, the best uni ever. I know, I agree. (laughs) Um, Okay, and the question that I finish on with everyone is, well, this is a new thing, but anyway. um, What do you think people should talk more about and what do you think people should talk less about? I think people should talk more about oh my gosh one of my friends erica she told me about this idea of being rather than doing so Mm. we need to be rather than do so i think we should talk more about being and less about doing yeah that's perfect and you know (laughs) what i'm gonna let people ponder that thought instead of forcing you to expand on it yeah just be just be yeah and I really like that when you introduced yourself you very quickly moved on from what you do to what you enjoy doing you know what I mean I was trying I was really conscious of that because I'm trying my best to not just there's something about like um the world that demands us to speak about our like 
or what do you do? Like, even when we ask people, like, oh, hi, what do you, what do, you do? Like, that's often the follow-up question. And one of my friends used to ask, what's the color of your soul? And I was wow. just like, oh, mine's so deep. I mean, I don't think, because then it makes you, like, think. <laughs> I don't think it's even the question. I think it's it's what the question does to you. Mm. Um, and I wonder how the world would be if people thought about what questions do to people. Like, again, like, feelings as opposed to, and emotions as opposed to, like, um you know facts or you know yeah things like that yeah definitely that's amazing um okay well we've been talking I've been taking too much of your time um but if people want to reach out where can they find you so everywhere at lanoire underscore jeremy perfect and that's on instagram twitter yeah not tiktok no (laughs) i'm not on tiktok perfect um thank you so much Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought. If you'd like, it would be great if you could rate it five stars because it really helps me out. Um, or if you want to follow the Instagram for the podcast, it's at not an OG thought pod. So at N-O-T-A-N-O-G thought pod. Um, or if you want to reach out to me directly, it's at Becky Lee, but with an X. So B-E-C xyly yep thanks and i will see you next week bye hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.